Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation. Hey, guys. Great to connect, guys. 200. It's a big number, and no, it's not the number of Spartans who stood staring down the Persian army at the Battle of Thermopylae. It is the count on the Hub podcast feed, the number of episodes that uh, Amal Adar Guzman, our producer, and you, Sean Spear, are kind of head of... Uh, the hub podcast operation have produced and watched on a little over a year, 12 months. Um, congratulations. It's great to see the audience really connecting with, you know, uh, long form interviews, great guests, and yes, rank speculation, political speculation on these, the, the Friday roundtables. Yeah. Th- thanks uh, to, to both you and Stuart uh, for being my regular mates on Fridays. Uh, and of course, Amal Atara Guzman, our, able producer who's always identifying new and interesting guests just uh, next week for instance i'm speaking to someone about ufos on monday and the metaverse on tuesday so uh, they're going to come at, keep coming at you and i guess last but not least our, our audience uh, which continues to grow uh, month over month uh, and has you know made this whole project uh, so fun and 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 worth it so yeah it's a exciting day and um, but we're certainly not stopping at 200 uh, that that's for sure yeah, it's cool to think, you know, 30,000 plus people a month tuning into as unique listeners into the the Hub podcast feed. It's like uh, it's like the Air Canada Center, Sean. Um, I think that's pretty cool. One year you're talking to the Air Canada Center. That's a wonderful thing about podcasting. Well, talking about ranked political speculation, uh, I think we've got to begin the first half of the show just talking about, you know, the week that was in Chinese election interference. Uh, this story, Stuart, has gone all over the place and back again over the last seven days. But what I want to try to focus on in our time here is wh- how the government is handling this, because it really it baffles me at the, to the extent to which a government that used to kind of pride itself in you know its sunny ways now seems to be kind of stonewalling with the best of them, a la Richard Nixon. Um, why? What gives here? Why this this intransigence towards um, what are clearly really, really serious allegations from arguably, you know, a highly credible source, CSIS. I mean, I don't think these are just, you know, made up agents lying to reporters. I mean, that, I guess, is a parallel universe that somebody could live in, but the rest of us aren't in it. So why is the government behaving the way it is? Yeah, one thing to take note of in the Globe and Mail reports is that they specifically say that they're giving an anonymity to their source because the source could be prosecuted. So um, the idea of doing it just to make it up, I think, doesn't totally make sense. Um, I think we can probably trust these reports coming from the Globe. And if I were to sort of give the best version of why the government might act this way, it's that 
this was said multiple times at committee this week that these intelligence reports can be decontextualized and seem different than you know what you might think if it was the full story. So the government is saying, if we were to see the full spectrum of intelligence in a report, you might draw a different conclusion than if you just saw a few paragraphs that were leaked to a reporter. Um, so that I think is the best version of it. Um, Hold you- on, Stuart. A few paragraphs. You're talking about a sitting liberal liberal MP who is alleged to have been a groomed candidate by the PRC, by the uh, Chinese consulate in Toronto, who engaged in a concerted campaign of rallying volunteers, students, seniors, financial support for an individual who is now sitting in the House of Commons as a member of the Liberal Caucus. Yeah. The So... Listeners can use their imagination to the extent that they can to imagine what context would make that not sound terrible. Um, And if you are the liberal, so here's the thing that I don't quite understand, Um, unless the liberals are just sort of generally jumpy about any kind of, you know, situation that could get out of hand in terms of an inquiry or a committee. um, Jerry Butts actually told the Globe that the best solution here would be to take the partisan fight out of this get it into an inquiry and the liberal demeanor could be, you could imagine a political situation in which the liberals say, look, we are appalled by this. Like whether it's our candidate or somebody else is a candidate, we are appalled by anyone interfering in our election. And we want to get to the bottom of this. And that demeanor would take a lot of the sting out of opposition attacks. Um, But when you look really jumpy and defensive about it, it makes people's imagination fire up and go ahead, Sean. Well, I was just going to say that the only problem with even with that is it still strikes me as too late, um, it, you know, because, of course, we have reason to believe based on this reporting uh, that the government and even uh, officials with with the Liberal Party of Canada itself were informed about uh, some of these issues in the context of the, the, the post 2019 election analysis. So. You know, even to take that position today in 2023, which, of course, as you say, would be better than than the government's current position, still doesn't address the the fundamental question, which is how come the how come the government sat on um, this information for the past couple of years? Why didn't it proactively uh, inform opposition leaders or even start to take legislative or or operational or policy action uh, to protect? future elections. Uh, that's the part of the piece of the puzzle that that I find so odd, that it's not just that the government is refusing to acknowledge these reports in 2023. It's that the only reason we even know about these reports in 2023 is because someone leaked them. And 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 yeah, I think that the, the outstanding question is what happened in the in the previous mm-hmm. years. Well, well, it, it, it's one thing to allow it to happen in one election, because maybe you're unprepared or you don't realize the extent of the penetration, again, all alleged here, but then to let that status quo go for a second election cycle, not to, as you say, Sean, implement, you know, a set of controls, changes, alerting the public, alerting the other political parties to these risks. It just leads you to some ugly conclusions that this was conveniently of political uh, interest to the Liberal Party of Canada to the extent to which um, they were in a competitive election uh, in 2021. They 
needed every seat they could get, especially in the GTA and uh, lower uh, mainland in British Columbia, where there are large Chinese ethnic populations who portions of clearly are um, a horrible combination of being intimidated by uh, their consulate and by who knows family ties that they have back to China that are used to prompt and prod their behavior as Canadian citizens here in Canada. I mean, that's just horrible to think about. Or they're just strong adherents of the PRC and big supporters of uh, the Beijing line. So the result is you're left with this queasy feeling that the Liberal Party didn't act on this because it really wasn't in their political interest, Stuart, to act on it. And again, that's a that's a lousy set of motives to imply to anyone or any institution. But it's 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 hard for me not to draw that line from from cause to effect. Yeah, and I would point to um, the National Post John Iveson's column this week, where he had an intelligence source saying this rises to the level of complicity from the Liberal Party. And I would say, you know, that we don't know at what level that complicity could happen, where it could be, you know, there's this scenario where the candidate doesn't even know that people are organizing for him. There's a scenario where he suspects it and doesn't want to think about it, so keeps it out of his head. The, the other one where he's totally complicit. There's another one where higher ups in the party are aware and not doing anything about this. And almost all of those are really bad for the Liberal Party. So, you know, I gave the best version of their defense <laughs> before. Um, you know, those are the least likely scenarios in my mind. And I, there are the more likely versions of this. When we look at what happened with Trump and Russia, the more likely versions of this scandal are worse than anything that came out of Trump and Russia, um, where you actually have people organizing on the ground here. Um, I don't remember any reports about that. I saw a lot of bad memes coming from Russia about Donald Trump, and then there was hacking from afar. Um, but this is deeply, deeply serious. And the government's reaction so far has been pretty unserious. That's a fascinating take, uh, Stuart. Um, and the parallels to the 2016 presidential election are somewhat inevitable. The interesting thing is the government has effectively been accusing the opposition and, and other voices of uh, sowing distrust in the reliability of our elections. Um, and it seems to me that it misses the kind of bigger point, which is the real similarity to the, the 2016 election uh, in the US is the government's reaction and Trump's reaction to accusations of foreign interference. And I I think, you know, Rudyard said we might do a bit of rank punditry. Let me do a bit of rank psychology. I, I think the one similarity that Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump have um, is that they are they have both have a bit of ego, which is inevitable uh, to be in the positions that they're in. But they also have a kind of self-image of being winners and fighters. And I think one of the reasons that Trump was so resistant to the claims of, of Russian interference in the election is he didn't want to concede the, the possibility that his election was tainted, that it needed to have an asterisk like Roger Maris's home run record when he reached 61. And I, I think that probably at a base level, that's what's driving uh, the, the government and the Liberal Party's position here, that even acknowledging that this happened um, even if I don't think anyone is claiming that it was had a material effect on the overall outcome of the race. Um, but still, there's something kind of in the prime minister's psyche. 
uh, and in turn the, the the governments and and the party's position that they won't even concede the point that something happened and that we have a a bigger kind of collective interest in getting to the bottom of that and fortifying our future elections um, so that people can have trust and confidence in the outcomes. And you know, I, I think that the, the prime minister needs to kind of park his ego here and recognize that there's um, bigger issues at stake. Yeah. And again, I'm just surprised, you know, that, look, despite all the partisanship, there are certain issues that come up on the national stage that you think just kind of call for the better, you know, angels of our nature for some sense of of goodwill towards the institutions that ultimately matter that govern the country. And if, our, if it's not our elections, then, you know, then what is it? So if, if this isn't going to cause this prime minister and his party to understand that, you know, leadership at times is about putting your interests second to the national interest. There is a clear national interest here. So Stuart, let's wrap up this segment again, just a bit of speculation about where this goes, because Right now, at the end of this week, uh, we're recording on Friday the 3rd of March, it looks like a very kind of typical setup. On one side, the opposition and media calling for, you know, a pretty maximal response here. On the other side, the government seemingly digging in, uh, stonewalling here. Uh, I thought somewhat cheekily releasing this uh, report, this much older report that didn't really look at these specific issues, but was more just about the election's overall integrity that was led by a senior bureaucrat who happened to be the very person who ran the Trudeau Foundation when it was revealed also this week that the Trudeau Foundation received uh, a million-dollar pledge from a Chinese businessman who was intercepted by CSIS on uh, wiretaps, um, in a sense, taking direction from Beijing to affect this donation I, I, can't, I just you can't make this stuff up, you know, and the fact that nobody ever recruises recruises themselves anymore. And I guess once you're an Ottawa Mandarin, you know, nothing you can ever do or say is wrong. I don't know, Stuart. It, I don't think it was a good week for the government, but I, I'm not holding my breath here that they're suddenly going to be on the road to Damascus and a big dose of sunlight uh, to expose what's uh, what's happened with election interference by China in our democracy. Yeah, I, I think that the opposition right now is calling for a public inquiry. Um, and I think that is probably not Trudeau's preferred outcome. And there is the other option too, of the national security and intelligence committee, which is a, all these people are read in um, to read classified information and they're sworn to secrecy. It's very quiet. If it went there, we wouldn't hear about it for a while. And then there would be a report. And actually uh, Fred Deloria, the former campaign co-chair for Aaron O'Toole said, that's probably the best place for it to go. Um, for the opposition, the theater might be better of a public inquiry. But, you know, I think this is maybe a decision that if you're a conservative um, organizer or a partisan, you kind of have to wonder about, do you want this to be a big sort of political win for you, which it might be, it might not be if it goes to an inquiry? Um, or do you want to actually try and solve this? Um, if the option is that at that committee, you can solve it, maybe down the road, you're not going to get screwed out of a seat or two um, by Chinese meddling in the next election. So if there is actually something you could do um, to fix this issue or fortify our elections, maybe that's worth pursuing if you're the conservatives. Sean, I hear, I, no, I hear you in that. But Sean, isn't this a little bit different, let's say, than the Winnipeg lab uh, where maybe the PRC military was doing virology you know, research on the Canadian tab? This is... 
this is very public. This is our elections. This is the ballot box. I, I feel like this has to be solved in public in order for, you know, the good results, the good consequences of that to actually be affected and impacted and to restore some lost confidence uh, in our democracy. I think that's right. Um, we already have a voter turnout problem in the country. And, uh, you know, I, I think at its core, the fundamental uh, uh, concern that politicians across the, the, the spectrum need to resolve is the, the kind of trust and confidence in our election processes. Um, and, and so in that sense, I think a, a public inquiry probably makes sense. If I can just wrap up, though, guys, by going full circle, we started this conversation kind of patting ourselves on the back for 200 episodes of the of the Hub podcasts. I observed in Pierre Polyev's messaging this week on this issue um, some of the same things that we heard from David Frum uh, on our episode of, of Conversations with David Frum uh, this week, in which David said, you know, one thing that throughout this entire exercise that we need to be clear in our minds about is that Chinese Canadians themselves are not threats to our democracies. In fact, quite the opposite. They themselves are the ones that are being subjected to harassment, intimidation, and even violence. And we have an onus not just to protect our electoral system from foreign meddling. We have an onus to protect Chinese Canadians and others uh, uh, who uh, can be subjected to this kind of pressure uh, from foreign actors in their uh, exercise of their right as Canadians to participate in our elections based on their values and preferences. I, I think that's a terribly important kind of underpinning that needs to be part of the way we think and talk about these issues. And I was glad to see uh, David's uh, thinking spill out into the the, the public realm uh, this week. Here, here. Well said. And uh, yeah, thank you to, again, our loyal uh, supporter of the podcast, the Maxine and Ira Ganoski Gluskin, you know, foundation, because it's really important to have the resources, the support of the foundation to make these 200 episodes in a little over a year possible and do a lot more to come. Well, look, when we come back on the break, um, we got something exciting going on at the hub, $50,000 in prizes. Maybe your name is on some of that cold, hard cash that's sitting right now in the Hub's bank accounts. We're going to tell you how you can get at it. It's going to require using your big brain, uh, but we think you'll be excited about what you'll hear next on the Hub Roundtable. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. We're back here on the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-chief. Okay, Sean, it was a big week at the Hub. We announced uh, the Hunter Prize for public policy, uh, a new kind of crowdsource competition to come up with 
the best policy prescription to reduce wait times in Canada. People can find all about it on our website. Simply go to the homepage and look for the blaring banner at the top uh, to uh, to dial in the Hunter Prize. We're not going to talk up the prize. We've done enough of that. But I want to talk more just about the state of public policy in Canada because part of the impetus of this prize is both for the hub to get off its armchair uh, and not simply be a critic, but try to proactively address some of the big challenges facing the country through uh, a call to produce papers, insights, analysis. In this case, this year, our focus is wait times in Canada, the wait times crisis. But the bigger question, Sean, of who really owns public policy in Canada? Because my sense is that there's a valiant struggle by our various think tanks to kind of interject new thinking and new ideas. But unlike the United States and maybe Great Britain to an extent, we really look to government to be the generator of public policy. And I'm wondering if you agree with that assertion and then what the kind of costs are possibly, the opportunity costs being over-reliant on government for public policy ideas. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things in response. So first of all, just in short, I I agree with your characterization of the current landscape um, that governments across the country have uh, something of a monopoly on kind of the ideation policy development process. And uh, one of the consequences of that is it pushes in the direction of something we've talked a lot about on this on this podcast, which is a tendency towards short-termism. You know, governments, I've worked in the prime minister's office, guys, the biggest scarcity that people have in government and politics is time and attention. And so uh, if most of the policy thinking in the country is going on within the constraints of of government, um, there's just a natural tendency towards day-to-day as opposed to thinking bigger picture. And of course, if there was any time to think bigger picture, it's now. We're in an era of reconceptualizing uh, uh, globalization uh, in, a, in a world of the renewal of great power competition, aging demographics, which of course are part of the story with respect to, to rising wait times. You know, I think new thinking about the role of markets and government and, you know, are there certain sectors or technologies for which we have a national security or national interest in ensuring our within our borders, a whole host of ways in which the, the, kind of basic building blocks of the way we think and talk about public policy has been increasingly shaky. And yet, as you say, Rudyard, there's not been uh, a go-to place for ideas outside of uh, the, the churn of, of government. And so in that sense, you're really excited about uh, the Hunter Prize and its ability to effectively pull new and different voices and ideas into the process. Um, and maybe that'll just be the last point I'll make here is that I go to these government roundtables all the time. I'm honored to be part of them, uh, Rudyard and Stewart. You know, I, I, I'm, it's always a treat to be able to sit down with senior politicians or public servants. One thing that's striking, though, is that it's always the exact same people at the table. Uh, and they're old, and they're white, and they're you know predominantly male. And I can tell you before we get in there what they're going to say, just as they can probably tell you what I'm going to say. And so one of the things we hope uh, that the Hunter Prize uh, can contribute to is the inclusion of of different voices, people who aren't, aren't typically part of these conversations. And uh, I just couldn't be more excited about the project, more grateful to the Hunter Family Foundation for kind of seeing the opportunity and the need for something like this. And uh, as you said, Rudyard, uh, just encourage listeners to check it out. 
and submit their ideas. It doesn't take a lot of time to get the initial submission in. Um, but if you're the winner, the, the payoff could be pretty big, not just for you, but I hope for policy discourse in the country. Yeah, well said. Um, you know, Stuart, one of the other kind of mysteries about how we create public policy, and if we think of public policy as kind of the software that a lot of the government kind of hardware runs on, is that we have a scenario, let's say, unlike, especially the United States, that's much bigger, uh, my sense is like, a lot of power centers outside of government, some of it not always good, unrestrained kind of corporate donations, et cetera. But the results in Canada is, you know, we have fabulous universities in this country. We have, um, you know, all kinds of experts in the private sector, you know, the, in the law community, uh, in various business associations. And it just seems weird. I don't know what, what the history of it is. Is it our our kind of uh, attitudes of deference that we we do seem okay with basically letting government bureaucrats and usually unelected political staffers set the majority of the big policy decisions of the country. I think of the most recent one around healthcare and this whole you know new kind of let's throw a bunch of billions at healthcare to quote solve it for a generation didn't work out so well for Paul Martin, but I guess we're going to try that again. So where does that come from, Stuart? Is it is it cultural? Is it the, something weird? The fact that Ottawa is just where Ottawa is. It's kind of it's not in a big capital city like London. Um, I don't know. Help help me here. Yeah, I, one thing as a journalist that I'm a little jealous of is American reporters who get to cover the Senate, the House, and the White House, because it kind of, the division there kind of allows for this policy entrepreneurialism. It means that if you are a senator that wants to distinguish him or herself, you can go to a think tank and say, you know, I'm really interested in this. Let's come up with something. And because of the way senators can make trouble and, you know, coalitions in the House can make trouble, they can actually make some noise about it and get some results. In Canada, you know, it's it's a little harder because of the party loyalty, because our Senate is, you know, basically a dead entity. Um, you have the same thing happening on the provinces. And I have noticed, too, one thing that I really wanted to do um, when I got into journalism was cover the ideas behind a lot of these policies. And you quick re re realize that's a small beat. <laughs> There's not a lot of ideas out there. And it's one of the reasons I started covering Jason Kenney so much is because he was one of the few politicians who was in the world of ideas, but also was in the world of politics. And he had a really good sense of which ideas would work, which ideas were important, and which of them would work politically. And I find, you know, we do have some really interesting policy minds out there, but almost um, on purpose, they'll not consider the political environment. So sometimes you have these ideas that are never going to work. And sometimes you have uh, politicians who would prefer to have different ideas, but they're not going to get them from anywhere. Mm -hmm. My last kick of the can here, Sean, goes to you. And it's just, it's about political parties. You know, in Europe, you have, and I'm not saying this is the right model, but it is different. On continental Europe, you have these big think tanks that are attached to the political parties. And in fact, funded often significantly or entirely by the state. In Canada, yeah, we have things called policy conventions. I don't really know how much original thinking goes on there. Why is it that political parties have, in a sense, allowed a lot of their thinking about how to operationalize their ide ideology 
into policy, why have they allowed, in a sense, government and bureaucrats and civil servants to take over that transmission mechanism? It always kind of baffles me because you spend all this time fighting for government, fighting for the levers of power, the command and control of the machinery of government. And then when you get there and you have been there in the cockpit of PMO, you're kind of at the, aren't you kind of at the mercy of the bureaucracy that there's just this complete informational asymmetry between what they know and their experiences versus what you have at your command to try to, again, take your ideology and turn it into policy. Yeah, man, ton of insight there, Rudyard. Um, uh, I, I agree with with everything you said. I'd be speculating on what has gotten us to this place, but let me just put one idea out there. It may be provocative for some listeners. I, part of me wonders if it's a, a part of the inherent trade-off of our relatively parsimonious donation limits. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of upsides to limiting um, donations to political parties to about $1,500 and prohibiting donations from corporations or or unions. I think it, for instance, has uh, caused our political parties to be more responsive uh, in a kind of a bottom-up way than, say, the Republicans or the Democrats in the U.S., and that may be a factor in explaining why we haven't seen the type of disruptive populism that we've seen in, in some other places. But I think an un, unappreciated trade-off is it means that our political parties then are principally focused on raising money to run their operations. Uh, you know, if you have an incremental dollar and you're a member of the Liberal Party, of Can or an official in the Liberal Party of Canada or the Conservative Party of Canada or whatever, that dollar is probably going to go to fundraising and development, and it's not going to go to public policy. And that's because you, in order to run an election campaign, you need to do it 1500 bucks at a time. And so I, I do think there is something to say that we probably need to have a, a bit of a debate about the trade-offs um, uh, that, that go neglected in our current uh, financial structure with respect to political parties. But in the meantime, uh, you know, we hope that the Hunter Prize can catalyze that kind of uh, infusion of, of new and interesting ideas. As you mentioned, Rudyard, this year we're prioritizing uh, the what we call wicked problem of uh, healthcare wait times. You know, we chose that because it's so timely and relevant and desperately in need of, of new ideas. In subsequent years, we may take up uh, issues that interest uh, other listeners, you know, uh, um, productivity or housing or climate change or whatever. And so uh, I think this has the potential to be, uh, yeah, a kind of a, uh, it's not going to solve some of the issues we're talking about here today, um, but a beachhead for uh, a, a kind of deep, in-depth conversation about the long-term issues facing the country and some practical solutions that can address um, those issues and and are, take account some of the things that that Stuart said, including um, political salience. So yeah, it's a big week at the hub. Uh, again, thanks to the Hunter Family Foundation for believing in this, I, this big idea. And we look forward to reading all of your submissions. My final comment on this is, again, I spent a bit of time in Washington. So I've always just been fascinated at how the think tanks there. So Brookings, if you can believe this, guys, a hundred million dollar a year budget, U.S., not Canadian. They're in a sense the, you know, the Democratic Party's brain trust, and 
terrific people from the administration circle back in and out. And when the Democrats are out of power, you know, they're at, they're at Brookings. AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, is kind of the, you know, the normie end of the Republican Party. Uh, they have equally huge scale, huge impact, and they provide all kinds of gestation of policy ideas when Republicans are out of power that are then subsequently implemented. You've got the Heritage Institute, which is a little more Trumpy, a little more populist. Anyway, it's just, it's just to me baffling why, and I don't mean this in a partisan sense for the conservative party, why the liberal party or the NDP or someone, maybe you said, Sean, it's the dollars are so rare. It all goes into election warfare, but why someone associated with those parties hasn't figured out that setting up a really robust kind of stacked policy institute, maybe even outside of the party structure, but informed by the party's ideology and goals could just be a huge asset to that party and to its political agenda, you know, for a generation to come. I've, you know, whatever, I've spent 25 years in this business thinking somebody's going to do this. Nobody has. So I think the market failure <laughs> speaks for itself, but it is baffling how we seem just completely uh, unable to kind of crack this problem. And let's hope the Hunter Prize, as you say, on the edges, on the periphery, a guerrilla insurgency to push some new policy thinking and ideas into the political center. Well, thanks, guys, for taking part in this week's roundtable. We're going to do it all again next Friday. In the meantime, have a terrific weekend. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues. It's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>